Take your Bibles and turn, I think, for the final time in your study of Romans with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans, the 8th chapter. As you know, after each chapter we've been doing in Romans, we've been stopping and looking back at the whole chapter to see kind of the theological implications to understand the whole chapter in, in a, from a bird's eye view. And, and I want to confess, the main reason I've done this is not so much for the benefit of your mind as my own. It's so easy to get lost in the details in the trees to remember the beauty of the forest. So we're going to stop after every chapter, as we've done, and just look back and do a theological kind of overview of these chapters. You'll remember that Romans was a letter written by the Apostle Paul as he stayed with his friend Gaius in the city of Corinth. Romans 16, 23 says so. He wrote this letter to a group of new Christians who were in a city that he'd never visited, and he longed to be with them, these Roman believers. But these Roman believers had very little idea what was about to take place in their chapter of church history and certainly in their own lives. It would only be a few years after Paul would write this that Nero would make it a capital offense to be a Christian. You would be executed for being a Christian. Fifty years after Nero, historian Tacitus, Roman historian Tacitus, wrote about that time during his reign and said this, Mockery of every sort was added to the Christians' deaths. Covered in skins, skins of beasts, they were torn like dogs and perished. Or they were nailed to crosses. Or they were doomed to the flames. End quote. Not within the lifetime of these Roman believers, but within months of their reception of this letter, they would be facing untold, traumatic and horrific trials. I think the, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, anticipated exactly what was going to happen in their life, in the lives of believers all throughout the ancient Near East, all the way down to you and me, and was using this this book in a whole, as a whole, but specifically this chapter to prepare them for the challenges and the trials and the difficulties ahead. And as we kind of go back and review this chapter and consider its treasures, I have to ask you, I wonder what God's preparing us for. This is not for nothing. God doesn't equip us for things that we don't need to be equipped for. And looking at the history of what happened to these Roman believers after they accumulated this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, looking forward to what was going to happen to them, I have to pause and say, the Lord is preparing us. As Mission Road Bible Church, as you and your individual family for something, I think we should take special heed to what he's preparing us for. One of the hardest classes I took in college, actually it's one of the hardest classes I've ever taken in my life, this, this simple course, I shouldn't say simple, this single course almost singularly derailed my entire college career. The course was statistics. Anyone like statistics? Our prayer room is open at the end of the service. There's room for you there. Um, I understood trigonometry, I understood geometry, I understood math, I understood physics. I, that made sense because there, there was math and there was an answer, and that was statistics was, well, it's kind of about that. 
It was a strange combination of math and speculation and, and demonic activities. <laughs> I, I, I struggled with statistics. But our final exam was one of the most interesting exams I, exams I ever had as a student. The instructor, knowing the, the, um, the voluminous amount of detail that we needed to know to take that exam, allowed us to have what he called a permissible cheat sheet. We could have one eight and a half by 11 paper, and we could, t- we could put anything we wanted on that one paper front and back and take it into the exam. You have no idea how small a font you can write in until given this opportunity. Well, I remember putting as much as I could on that piece of paper, and I passed the class. I think it was my lowest grade in college, but I passed the class. Romans 8 functions almost like that one-page permissible cheat sheet. I would say this. If you're going to introduce someone to Christianity, to life as a Christian, and to the expectations of what it'll be like as a Christian, you could teach them through the curriculum of Romans 8, and you would have a complete picture. It's a summary that functions similarly to that cheat sheet. It's a shorthand version of Christian experience. It's a ready aid for any sort of trial and a ready aid for any sore soul. So let's review it together. And I want to tell you right now, we are going to go fast. But instead of trying to get it all, what I want you to try to do is get something. My prayer for us this morning is that as we review all 39 verses of this chapter, that you wouldn't go away with this grasp of the whole chapter and know it all. If you do, that's great. You're way ahead of me. But that the Lord would use something we've already studied, a verse, an insight, a thought, and he would take that, and that would be an anchor point for your soul, not only this week, but somehow life-changing. Now, as we look at this chapter, there are two giant themes. When you break it down, there are two big themes that we're going to look at. The first is what Christ and the gospel take away from us as sinners. And the second is what Christ and the gospel give to us as redeemed people. So you understand what's going on? Paul talks about what he takes away from us that's detrimental to us, sin. And also what he gives us, which is so important for us, in the blessings of salvation. So basically the way the chapter breaks down. So let's just go through a simple outline. Number one, Christ brings freedom from sin. Christ brings freedom from sin. This is the first 17 verses. And first of all, underneath that point, let's look at this. Freedom from sin's condemnation. The first thing he brings is freedom from sin's condemnation. Look how this is available to those in Christ as made possible by the law of the Spirit in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, looks back at the uh, verses, um, I think chapters 5, 6, and 7, and says, because Christ is the new Adam, because he has given us new life, because there is still residual sin that lives in us that continually condemns us in our conscience, it's easy for someone to stop and say, how can I be saved and think and live this way? Well, his answer is, it's not dependent on you. This is the best news of the gospel. Salvation is not dependent on us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the giant umbrella that protects us from the reign of God's wrath. He is the proxy that stands instead of us and for us 
on the cross receiving the wrath of God. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of the life of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And remember studying that that law of death condemns us. It's our conscience as we learned in Romans 2 and it's the written law of God as we learn in Romans 3. Verse 3 begins to tell us that the accomplishment not attained by the law was only attained by the death of Christ. This goes back to those people who were living legalistically. One of the things we have to be careful with is using the term legalism wrongly. Some people say, well, he's so legalistic or she's so legalistic. What they typically may is say, what they typically mean by what they say is that they're living a higher standard than I'm comfortable with or a different standard than I'm comfortable with. That's not technically legalism in the Bible. Legalism in the Bible is trying to be saved by something you do, saved by works. Legal has to do with law, trying to be saved by law. Look at what verse 3 says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. In other words, if it were only about obeying commands, forget it, we're not, we're not a, a strong enough to do it. Our flesh is too weak to do that. There's no list of rules that you and I could ever attain to where God would say, wow, they've done it. But God did it. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What's he saying? I remember explaining uh, the, 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 uh, the Bible and the gospel to a friend who didn't believe in God or the gospel or the Bible. But he said, look, I, I want to give you an hour. Let's have lunch. Tell me about the Bible and tell, tell me why I should believe it. And I, I labored over that for a long time and basically was able to come to this little description that, frankly, I, to, to this day, I don't know if it moved him along anymore. I'm not sure if he ever came to know the Lord, but it helped me. It was almost as if God, from Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament, was telling people, here's my righteousness, here's my holiness, here's my standard. You must live exactly and perfectly according to it. How'd that work out? Failure after failure after failure. Traction, failure, traction, traction, failure, 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 over and over and over. And it was almost as if by the end of Malachi, man stood with his fist in God's face, shaking it, saying, this is impossible. If you think this is so easy to do, why don't you come and show us how to do it? That's exactly what he did. In Christ, he came and fulfilled every category of the law. He beat the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. He, he fulfilled every category of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And he reservoired, he stored, he attained because of who he was and what he did, the righteousness of God and then died a substitutionary death that we deserved instead of us. We couldn't do it, weak as it was in the flesh. God did in Christ. That's the gospel. Next, in verses 5 through 17, I want you to notice freedom from sin's power. Not only freedom from sin's condemnation, but look at this. Freedom from sin's power. This is so practical. 
verses 5 through 8 are going to tell us about those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit and not the flesh are the ones who please God. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's a tag word for those who are unbelievers. Their mind is on the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the things that please oneself. But those who are according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. If your mind is pursuing your own fleshly desires and lusts, you will experience physical death like all of us, but eternal death like those who are unredeemed. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because, here's the explanation, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Unbelievers' mindset is not just anti-God or other than God, it's hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It doesn't care about what God, what God says or his commands. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What I want you to notice here is this is all about the mind. What fundamentally changes when a pe- person gives their life to Christ is their mind, their perspective, their worldview, their thinking. And a person whose mind is not changed after quote unquote believing the gospel is not a person who's truly a saved person. James tell us there are, tells us there are unsaved believers, right? Jesus said that. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that great day, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What's the difference between someone who believes facts about Jesus, who believes some things about the Bible, but doesn't give their life to that? The, all, the all-consuming difference is the mind. It's the mind set on the flesh. It's the mind set on the spirit. It's a disposition. It's a leaning, as Jonathan Edwards said. You lean toward God even though you feel the gravitational pull away from him. We have freedom because of the gospel to think differently, to have a new worldview, to have a new perspective that's ordered by Christ and his word. If we go on through verses 9 through 11, we also have help to do this. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now we're ta- he's talking to believers. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. How do you know if you have the spirit of God? He knows you're going to ask that. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Well, how do I work that out? Verse 10. If Christ is in you. What's interesting is he, do you see what he's doing here? He equates the spirit with Christ. He makes them synonyms, which is really encouraging when you try to get the Trinity figured out, and you realize that Paul himself used them interchangeably within the Godhead. The Spirit of Christ is Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, who is all in you. And if you want me to figure that out, let's write a paper together, and we'll make a lot of money on that book. If Christ, the Spirit of Christ, is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. We see the battle against our sin and toward living righteous. It's not about being perfect. It's about being righteouser than you were. Bad grammar intended. And then we come back. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. This is so incredible. He will give us life in learning how to live for him in this world, in a sinful world. He will give us life after death, long after we have been buried and our corpses decomposed. But that's all based on the living reality we've said over and over of, of the resurrection of Jesus. If he has not risen from the dead, there is no Christianity. He goes on to verses 12 and 13 to talk about the, those who are led by this spirit, spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So brethren, so then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a, a shorthand for sanctification. How can you know if you're a believer? This whole chapter has assurance in mind. Are you living for Christ in this regard? Do you see your lapses and hate them? And do you see your victories and pursue them? This chapter is not talking about getting your life in, such, in order to such a degree that God will finally look down from heaven and say they've made it. This, this chapter is about leaning into God and away from sin. It's about recognition of sin. It's about living according to the flesh, according to the spirit, and not the deeds of the flesh. And look at that last phrase in verse 13. It's about putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. Are you active in aggressive sanctification, aggressive mortification of your earthly and fleshly desires that are sinful? I think a good question for our care groups is to look at each other and say, what have we done this week to die to our flesh because of Christ? Are we actively fighting the egregious residual sin and mindset and thinking that still resides in us? And then he moves into verses 14 to 17 with this incredible, unbelievable ideology of adoption. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, that's those who are fighting the flesh and pursuing God, these are sons of God, children of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Father, Abba Father, Dad, Daddy, our precious Father. And the Spirit himself, this is incredible, the Holy Spirit himself, you say, is that the Spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Yes. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There is, there is a still small voice in the soul of a believer that whispers, keep fighting, keep striving, keep struggling, don't give up. While that loud voice on the outside of our conscience yells at us, you cannot be saved. There's no way you would be saved. God would never leave you in this state. He certainly wouldn't have you in this state. The Spirit says, no. You're a child of God. You've been adopted. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is so important. Difficulty and suffering as a believer 
is God's stamp on our life, that he is with us, that he does love us, that he will sustain us. All of that because he's taken sin away at the cross. And the residual sin in our flesh that we still fight during this lifetime, he's given us power to overcome by the resurrection. That's what he's taken away. Yeah. We've talked about salvation being really able to be divided into two sections. Dealing with our problem of sin, which he takes away at the cross, which gets us back to neutral zero. But also providing for us righteousness that will allow God to accept us. And that's what he gives us at the cross as well. But he gives us so much more. We come into the last, chapter, last half of this chapter, number two. Not only has he taken something away, which is bad, now Christ brings blessing from God. He took away what was really bad, and he brings us what is really good. You want a summary of Romans 8? There it is. He took away what was really bad, and he brings or gives us what is really, really good. What would you start with if you wanted to give what was really, really good? Letter A, the hope of heaven. I'd start with the hope of heaven. These present sufferings, these present trials, they don't even equate. Remember, Paul is talking to people who are about to be lit on fire because of their faith, burnt alive, put in arenas and killed by lions as people cheer and laugh. Having their families taken away into slavery, having their property stolen, being left sometimes out in the destitute wilderness to starve because no one would feed them because of their faith. With all that, Paul says, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He basically says this, as, as bad as bad can be, the good that's coming is exponentially better than the bad. I, I, I compare. He, he tells us to compare. I want to consider, I want to compare the worst things that can happen in this life compared to eternity. Now, I wasn't great at math, and I certainly wasn't great at statistics, but I do know the lesser than and greater than sign. You know that? Let's do some math here. Is living forever with all the blessings in Christ greater than living 60 or 70 or 80 years on this world with sufferings and trials? Is that an easy mathematical equation to figure out? He wants us to figure that out and live in that reality. It's not going to stay this way. No no matter how bad it gets, it won't be this way forever. And he'll have something else to say about what it is here in verse 28. Then he shifts over to this groaning theme for a few verses. The whole creation groans and awaits for the revealing of the glorious liberty of the son of the sons and, and daughters of God. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is cursed. Remember, he, God cursed the ground. Not only did he, did he curse uh, the woman in childbirth, he cursed the man in toil because the ground is now cursed. This world is broken. That's why there are volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and lightning and thunderstorms that 
that are devastating. The world is broken. It's under the judgment of God because we, by our sin, broke it. There is a link. This is so unfathomable for the the, um, non-creation scientists, for those who, who have an evolutionary scheme. There is a link directly drawn in the Bible between a man's moral choice, Adam, and all since him, and the creation. The creation longs to be reborn. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. It goes back to Ecclesiastes. Um, uh, vanity, uselessness is not fulfilling everything that it was intended. Not willingly, it didn't do anything wrong, but because of him who subjected it, God cursed the ground because of us. My son just turned in a paper in the public high school that he goes to. He's not in the service, so I can talk about this. And um, it was a question that he had to answer in a page. He said, where does evil come from? And I read it, and, and, and I wept. You know what he said? All the evil in the world comes from man's sin. Now, we will wait to see what kind of (laughs) grade that receives, but I was so encouraged. He's summarizing what's happening here. In hope that the creation itself, verse 21, will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation one day will be ruled and reigned over by the children of God in the millennium and beyond because of the gift of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, Together until now. Look at verses 23 and 25, 225. He goes from this eagerly waiting of the creation to our eager anticipation. Not only this, not only does the creation anticipate, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves long anticipate, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. You say, wait a minute, we're already adopted. He's talking about the final consummation where we, get, we receive our glorified bodies and we are in heaven forever. The redemption of our body, he says so in the next phrase. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For one who hope, for who hopes for what he has already seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Can I just give you some encouragement? If you're putting your hope on the fact that life is going to maybe get better, it, it might, it might ebb and flow. If you're if you're putting on your hope that something in your life will happen, which will make your life complete and and free from tragedy and and pain and heartache and difficulty, that's not hope. Hope is not seen. What he's talking about here is something that only faith can anticipate, only faith can materialize in the mind, only faith can long for or groan for. It's comparing this world to what we haven't seen yet. Do you believe in heaven? If you believe in heaven, that means you believe in the resurrection If you believe in the resurrection, it means you believe Jesus is raised from the dead, which means you believe in incredible works of God. Therefore, you can believe in yours, your future. But Paul understands we're going to 
We're going to struggle. We're going to have difficulty. We're going to have low moments and dark moments and weak moments. All of us will. So he says, you're going to have help. I'm going to give you help. The help of the Holy Spirit. The help of of the Holy Spirit, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Wow, there's an admission. Paul says we are weak. Even the apostle Paul was weak and needed help. We, he helps our weakness for we don't know how to pray as we should. He helps us as we pray. He intercedes for us when we come into that dead end and cul-de-sac of what not to pray, of how not to pray. We just run out of things to pray for, but the Spirit himself It's a reflexive in the Greek. The Spirit himself, he doesn't send an angel. He himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He prays for us. When we get into a place where we just can't even pray because of weakness, we don't even know how to pray because of weakness, he steps in. It doesn't say here that we always feel or sense or know his stepping in, but it does say that he does. He who, searches, he who searches the mind, the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He will pray for us what we might never pray for ourselves. He may pray, we may pray, let's say it this way, Lord, deliver me from this trial. And he may pray, Lord, keep them in there until they're conformed to the image of Christ. He prays for us according to the will of God. Our goal in our prayer life and our living is to learn to pray and to live according to his will in keeping with that same purpose. Interestingly, he says, we do not know how to pray, which is followed up in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Several things jump off this. Those who love God, that's the qualifier. Do you love God? What did uh, Jesus say? The summary of the law is the first, first position of your mind to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love God? Not do you have a Christian standard, go to a Christian church, have Christian morals. Do you love God? How do you love God? You see further in this chapter that it's the personification of God in the incarnation, in the person of Christ. Do you love Christ? Do you have an affection and an inclination to want and to know him more? Because to those people who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. But we might not see all that good. We have to be careful. But we can perceive that nothing happens in our life where God says, whoops, or uh-oh, or I didn't see that coming. He's orchestrating it all for our good in time and his glory in eternity. Because we're called according to his purpose, not our own. Then he gives this little chain of salvation for those whom he foreknew, eternity past. He predestined, eternity past, to be conformed to the image of his son in the present, that he would be the firstborn among many many brethren. That's to live the resurrected life here and the resurrected life in eternity. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, 
he also glorified. He who began a good work in you will continue to complete it and perfect it until when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started. He's not done with us. And this whole chapter screams that the trials and difficulties that we face are reminders that he's whittling away at our flesh. He's working on our responses. I had an email conversation last night and this morning with a friend who just had one of the most significant disappointments in his life. We talked about it a little bit last night. I went to bed. He's overseas. He emailed me back this morning and said, God has never let me down in my life before. How can I think in this moment of difficulty, he's leaving me to my own? That's the perspective this is screaming for. So we come, letter D, to God's inseparable love for his elect. His inseparable love for his elect. What do we say to that? Eternity past, eternity future, sanctified in the middle, conformed to the image of Christ. What do we say to that, that he's taking care of all of it? Well, his answer is, well, if God is for us, that's his summary of the golden links of salvation. God is for us. And if he is for us, huh, who or what could stand against us? Remember the context here. These are people who are going to be persecuted and killed for their faith. Who or what can stand against us? And someone might say, well, a lot of people, they could kill us. So he says, remember this. You who were spared by the, by the cross of the wrath of God, you who were spared by his grace, remember that he who did not spare his own son. He spared the adopted ones. He didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And the key is with him. He gives us all things with him. He is the treasure. He is the answer. You can keep buying things and experiencing things and going places and doing everything you think that will make you happy and it will be like drinking salt water. It will only make you more thirsty. But with him, he freely gives us all things we really need and all things our souls should learn to desire. Then he says, another question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? This is going back to the very first verse. No condemnation in Christ. Christ who died for us now intercedes for us at the right hand. How can anyone disrupt that? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. I love the fact that he can't talk about the death of Christ without talking about the resurrection. He doesn't leave Jesus hanging on the cross as some crucifixes do. His cross is empty and so should ours be. He was raised, who is at the right hand of God. You know what he's doing? He's somewhere at the right hand of God doing something. He is also with the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. The Father is talking with them about you. We are the object as children of God, as adopted children of God, of inner Trinitarian discussion. That's incredible. And so... He ends by saying, because of that, it's going to look like we lose. 
whether it's a Supreme Court decision, whether it's a, a clerk going to jail in Kentucky, whether it's Christians being wrapped in animal skins so that the lions would find them more tasty or thrown into a fire. He says we're conquerors. We are conquerors. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's the greatest threat. These are difficult issues to wrestle through, the difficulties of life, but ultimately that makes us wonder, am I really saved? Can I really be saved? Does God still have my eternity assured? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he asks some, some uh, rhetorical questions. Will tribulation? No. Will distress? No. Will persecution? No. Famine or destitution, not having enough money? No. Nakedness, not having even enough to clothe yourself? No. Peril, the difficulties that come with relationships? No. Sword, even being executed? No. Just as it is written, he says, look, it's been this way from all the way back. Just as it is written, Psalm 44, years, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are being considered as sheep to be slaughtered just when you think it's just not right. It's not fair. We're on God's side. How can this happen? But, verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly, spilling over, conquer through him who loved us. Christianity is doomed by God's providence to look to the world like it's lost everything, to sanctify and perfect us. But one day in heaven, all wrongs will be righted and we will show to be, be shown to be conquerors through him who loved us. You know why? Because I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things past, or things to come, nor powers, nor high things, or low things, or, or any other created things. You know what that means? Everything outside of God. Everything outside of God has been created. Nothing else, no other created thing, person, or circumstance will be able to separate us from the love of God how do you know you have the love of God? It's in one place, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Full circle with the person of Christ. So, here's what I take away. There are thousands of things you could take away. I sat down last night, and I just read this chapter, and I said, okay, I know God's preparing me for something with this. What is it? This is what I took away, and you can... I would encourage you to read this chapter and find your own. Let me give you a half dozen real quick. Christ takes away what's eternally bad and gives me what's eternally good, number one. I mean, <laughs> can't you just say amen after that? Just close in prayer. He takes away what's eternally bad, my sin's penalty, and my fight with sin. He gives me grace to, to fight, and he gives me what's eternally good. It's all going to be okay. It's going to be okay, he says. 
Number two, back in five through seven, we remember that the Christian life is lived first and foremost through the mind. It's lived first and foremost, foremost through the mind. He says the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on the spirit. So my takeaway is that my mental capacities by reading and meditating on and memorizing and understanding God's word, that's the way your mind is changed. The Christian life is lived first and foremost in the mind. A third takeaway I got, Christianity is about God's love for us and our love for him. It's a love relationship. Over and over, who can separate us from his love? We're, we're protected by Christ's love. He loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And then right in the middle of Romans 8, 28, to those who love God. It's a real relationship with a real living person who is Christ. It's not just a moral standard. It's not just behavior modification. It is a love relationship between the creator and the creatures. Number four, perspective is based on eternity. Man, does he go over this. He will, we will get this again in the, in the last eight chapters of Romans. Perspective must be based or shaped on eternity. If you base your perspective just on what you're going to experience in this life in general or in this trial in particular, you're going to be off. We have to have eternity in mind to shape our perspective. Verse 18 says, compare. I don't consider, I don't compare the sufferings of this world as anything compared to the glory of God in heaven with Christ. Number five takeaway for me, we have help. As bad as it is, it's not just looking forward to, to, to heaven and knowing it's all gonna be righted then. We have help in heaven right now because the Spirit and the Son of God know and care to such degree that they're praying for us because they love us, they, he. What pronoun do you use for God? He, the Godhead, loves us and prays, talks about us within himself. And then when you sum it all up, for me, and there are dozens more you could add, number six, if God is for me, it can be well with my soul. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? That, my friends, is a theology for life. That is the philosophy of living. That's your cheat sheet. You want to know how to get traction? You want to know how to get, get, get an advantage? You want to know how to, how to deal with sin? You want to know how to have the right perspective? Just read Romans 8. Can I suggest something? Wouldn't it be great if we as a church body and you within your families over the next week or month or year memorized Romans 8? What a precious, precious chapter this is. It will teach you what the gospel is, why the gospel matters, and how the gospel ends for us and is really good. And that's enough for now. Let's pray. You know, I sense that if we just read this chapter in your word, that we could close our Bibles and walk away and be so blessed. 
We're so grateful that you know us, that you know our futures, that you know our past, that you know our, our struggles, our trials, our difficulties, our sufferings, our persecutions. You know it all and have given us not only preparation for it in the future, but grace for it when we're in it. God, thank you for talking within yourself about us as believers. And please, make us to be answers to your own prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.